0: If you hire loads of CTOs, it's kind of easy because you can benchmark, you you have an existing team you work with, um, whereas if it's your first CTO hire, you did not know what to look for. The actual specifics of hiring the team or locating the talent, hunting down the people.
1: Um, I think building a team is the hardest thing. Hello and welcome to The Finterview, a show about the stories of innovators, entrepreneurs and builders shaping the future of our financial world, technology we're going to keep finding inspiring stories to share with you so make sure you have subscribed to the show to never miss an episode why not share the show with someone who would love these stories it will make us very happy and your friend would also love it
2: hi everyone I'm your host of The fintech I'm our um, The FintiView is sponsored by the Fintech Foundation in Integrated Finance and I'm joined today by uh, a fintech whiz um, of a founder, Charlie Dellingpole, previously founder and CEO of Comply Advantage, uh, now in the role of chairman of the board. Is that correct, Charlie?
0: That's correct, yeah.
2: I don't know if you remember, but um, I used to be one of a client of yours at my, my previous company. I think we signed with you super early doors, like back in 2018. And I always just really wanted to understand, like, you know, your, where Comply Advantage was at that time to where you guys are today. You've grown tremendously. But like, even back then, you were kind of seen as like such a challenger, such an innovator. And how, how did you kind of have the idea of Comply and, um, where, where did it all come from for you?
0: In terms of the genesis of my advantage, um, I started the company back in 2014, um, from this very room I'm in now. Uh, we had many developers in my garage downstairs, we had some people talking to clients in my living room next door and um, back in the kind of primeval primordial days of fintech, um, 2009 I started Market Invoice and in doing that I encountered all the problems that any fintech companies to face specifically is the money I'm giving out going to a fraudster, or is it going to a um, a, a sanctioned company? Is it going to um, a company that's a front for a drug laundering company, or so? So um, those problems I faced, and I, I I think in doing that the solutions that they had weren't particularly good, and in quite much I, I wanted to kind of solve those problems. So um, specifically the The starting point was data so how do I know if someone is bad and the way that data was collected historically was via analysts manually creating information so they'd have like a team of thousand people who would kind of try and track every person in the company and for me intuitively algorithmic ingestion and collection of data is superior to manual um, and that's only becoming more true as data improves um, and software improves so the first client that we had was moving money to Somalia, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and the problems that they had were around false positives, false negatives. So if I send a payment and um, that um, the name is Mohammed Ahmed, right, then um, you're going to get tons of false positives, as in tons of other people also called Mohammed Ahmed. But then also there'll be some names that you miss. There'll be Mohammed Ahmed, who is actually a terrorist, but we haven't got on the list. So um, it's a central problem in money laundering is how you you solve that. And so um, that has three impacts. It impacts the cost overhead in terms of you have to have huge teams of analysts manually remediating false positives. It impacts the risk in terms of um, am I actually gonna get fined or am I actually going to send money to someone that's bad? Um, And finally, there's a kind of revenue friction in terms of the experience for clients is worse. So um, that means the data and what we sell is worth paying for because what we sell is only maybe a fifth of the overall cost. The real cost is the cost in terms of operational overhead, the amount of radiation, the cost is the human labor and the cost is the friction. So um, therefore, people should pay for what we're selling. Um, And that's why this data specifically is valuable. I mean, when you say that, you make it you make it
2: sound so easy, right? Like it sounds so obvious. Um, but I imagine at the beginning when you started started the company, it wasn't obvious, right? And, and convincing your customers at the time and when, when your team are in the other room behind you was hard. What? How did you over overcome those initial challenges of selling your product and explaining it? Why it's so much better than the process that they were doing at the time?
0: So I think. For me, part of the traction of the business was that it's kind of classical disruption in terms of on day one, the product is worse because you haven't got this massive historical data set you collated, but then as you improve over time, as the algorithms get better, as the breadth of data, as the, kind of like, as the company gets bigger, um, it improves. And after investing many years and millions of dollars there's an inflection point and it kind of carries on. So um, I think primarily what I wanted was sustainable barriers to entry in a business, as in I didn't want it to be easy to replicate and therefore I chose something that was deliberately provocatively hard. It's kind of easy to conceive of but very difficult to execute and surely kind of tend towards one company. So we're trying to collect information from every person and every company in the world. And if we miss, say, a date of birth, right? Um, then, or miss a name, then that means that the knock-on impact is huge in terms of the friction for onboarding, and, and, and therefore, um, some companies, it's a question of, you have, um, like like 10% is good enough, right? As in, you can get a company going very easily um, with a basic product, or you build it yourself, right? There's a build versus buy decision. That's kind of the classic. classic. Um, dilemma. But this <clears throat> never has that because if you wanted to replicate it, then how would that be possible? Um, it's basically impossible because at, like, the, the, the kind of insights you can get from say, okay, I know this person is connected to that company and that company is owned by a Russian oligarch. It's kind of, it's just impossibly huge scale and that adds value but also means that it should be impossible to replicate. So um, I didn't want a company that could get going and then die after like two years. I want something that kind of would have momentum and compound upon itself, right? So the challenge wasn't explaining it. The product marketing pitch is simple, right? The question is how you deliver upon that and all the complexity, all the challenge is Behind that, and and so now we're kind of five hundred people. Um, we're like one thousand two hundred clients. We're kind of industry standards, and it's getting better every single day. And the quality of team and quality of product is only like um, compounding upon itself, right? So, um, but getting here was not easy. I started the company nine years ago, right? It's a lot It's been. Like a lot of work, right? Which is partly why I'm happy to be promoted to chairman, right? It's just um, yeah, it, it is like, and it's like if you're, you're gonna CEO, right? It's like everything comes to you, right? Every single, every single investor query, every single employee query, every single you know, like ultimately, um, you're on the line, right? So yeah, it, it's um, it's been a ton of work, and
2: I guess from that point, what you just said. Was the hardest part of running the business as CEO the people side, like employees and investors, or was it the execution side, which you've said is was so
0: critical to get right? It's my third company and therefore the first bit was pretty easy because I kind of knew exactly on day one precisely how it would play out and all my companies have been basically the same thing in terms of they've been kind of building stuff and selling it, right? So it's been B2B sales motion, product marketing, building a technology team, so I kind of I knew exactly what to do on day one and how to architect the company in the org structure. Um, I guess what you see when you're scaling a company is that um, the hardest type of role is the kind of first kind of its role. So like, um, like the, the kind of you have endless specialization, whereby you have to think of new roles and you have to be able to enforce discipline. And if someone isn't delivering, you have to part ways, right? So I think um, it's very easy to kind of land an offer, you promise the world, and give them lots of money. The, the the harder thing is, I think, selecting the people and um, seeing who's good for the role. And then if someone if that person doesn't perform in that role, being able to do like exit them in a nice way and get someone else in, and um, like. If you hire loads of CTOs, it's kind of easy because you can benchmark, you you have an existing team you work with, um, whereas if it was your first CTO hire, you didn't know what to look for, the actual specifics of hiring a team, or locating the talent, hunting down the people, um, I, I think building a team is the hardest thing.
2: And and that's kind of a common answer across you know most successful founders you see, right? It, it's that managing of people and managing um, a team. But... On the execution side, you mentioned that you know it's your, it's your third time doing it, so you found it. You you knew what you wanted to do and how you wanted to do it. But that's for comply advantage. If we go back to the first time you founded your company or your, your very first company, what were some of the challenges you faced there, and and what was the process you went through to kind of learn from that? And di- were there any really obvious mistakes you made? Like looking back, you're like, oh, that was so dumb. Why did I do that?
0: Yeah, I think with hindsight, my first company I did when I was sixteen, and um, one of our investors says you could have won the Olympics instead. You won the school egg and spoon race because that company was before Facebook, before social media. It could have been, could have been that right. I think um, that company. I just learned how to code, built everything myself, and I I work until like you know two three a.m. Just you know in the school holidays. Just building it, right, and I kind of, and, like, my first, like, you know, like, but, but when I was still before school, it was bringing in, like, um, like, thousands of pounds a day, right, so, um, and that was without building a team, I, I just ran everything myself, right, I was kind of, um, and I built, kind of, 10 different products, and I was just constantly, like, trying new stuff, right, so, but again, that wasn't, like, it wasn't actually an actual real company, right, so, um, and I think, in doing that, I realised that I knew very little and was very ignorant, and so that's kind of why I sold it and then went to work in like a in a back right, just to kind of work with other companies and leaders and see how they ran the company, right? So it was more of like an education. So I think as a kind of as a like seventeen year old, I knew that I loved this stuff and was good enough to make some progress. But also I knew that I didn't necessarily have the kind of framework for thinking about how to run a company. That's interesting. And
2: so starting a company at sixteen and, and making it even earning anything, it should be classified as a huge success, right? I mean, winning the egg and spoon race, as you mentioned. Did you did you always really know from like a young age that you wanted to be a builder, to be an entrepreneur? Or did you did you kind of stumble upon it by happen chance, do you think?
0: So I think um, the way I frame it is it's working hard on ambitiously exciting projects with a great team, right? Um, and that's fun. And that could be anything, right? So, um, but I think this happens to be, I think if, you, if you're building a company and there's like unlimited upside, like that's the exciting part. You go in and, you know, you, you have this vision and, you know, you walk to the office and there's a great team of people who are realizing that. I, I, that's the exciting thing to see it can kind of materialize, right? So, um. Yeah, I, th- I think ha- having like a dream and fighting in the trenches with people w- to to achieve that dream is like exciting and fun, right? It's much 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 more fun than like you know if you have like a hundred billion dollar company and it's like you know you have like formal structures and um it's it's like you know uh, the thing is that companies are very consequential in terms of that like, we now raised a hundred million dollars. Um, we have like pension funds who have their life savings invested in the company. We have like, you know, 500 people whose families rely on us to pay for their nappies and milk and mortgages, right? And then the clients are like, you know, it's critical, right? You need like, now it's like more like nine lines of uptime and if something goes wrong and then the terrorists have got through, right? So it's kind of um, it's that the obligations people who are running companies are huge and like whereas i think part of the beauty of like having nothing at the start is that you're unencumbered and um there are no consequences beyond the kind of immediate blast radius so yeah i I think um yeah i I think companies change as you get bigger i mean it sounds like obviously that's a lot of pressure
2: right there's you're being pulled or there's pressure from so many different directions be it investors employees clients what were uh, some of the things that you did to manage that pressure right because as ceo that that's a ton of pressure and as founder what what would your advice be on managing that pressure to
0: future founders i think the biggest pressure you put on is yourself right because you always have your own i i think like um life is short right and you know, you, you, you're going to die in a blink of an eye, right? And therefore you have to achieve something before you go, right? I think, um, but also you can only take one day at a time and you have to, uh, you you have like thousands of things that you could do. Um, and therefore I think the critical thing is having an executive team who can deliver and you set the right cultural norms to permeate throughout the company, right? So there's a mission, vision, cultural values, um, so you have a kind of framework um, for people to interpret how they should act, but also the people, I mean, I, I think so many of the choices are made by the middle management in the company, um, and there are choices being made every day that you're never exposed to as CEO, and therefore you need to have your exec team um, managing their, like, 10 direct reports effectively, and out of a culture where there's accountability and people don't deliver, people aren't able to um, achieve the vision of the company, then you have to part ways and you have to do it in a sensitive way. It doesn't lead to animosity, right? So um, in terms of how you architect that at scale, that, that, that's the kind of core challenge. But there are processes and systems in place to help you achieve that, right? So, um, yeah, it, I think it all goes back to basics how you a company. i mean for
2: me when, when i was a founder the the pressure i put on myself was huge the pressure that i had when i was you have a team then you want to make it a success because you're you know they have put their faith in you um as the founder to kind of lead that company to success and and then obviously you have end customers and for me I, luckily i was really good at compartmentalizing so when I left the office I was able to like all those stresses of the day I was able to kind of leave it in the office go home um, hang out with my partner watch a bit of TV and enjoy the evening right and, and I know a lot of other founders struggle to do that um, but then also at the same time you know you're watching TV but then your mind just drifts straight back to work right as founder yeah. your company you're literally I don't think you're ever fully switched off like even when you're sleeping you're probably dreaming about work
0: yeah absolutely. what
2: did you do i mean and that probably only exacerbates with scale and with more employees and more clients and stuff so what were some of the coping mechanisms or you employed to kind of manage that pressure and that stress internally
0: um i think you have to enjoy it right i think running a company has to be a um end in itself rather than means to an end you have to enjoy every day and you have to celebrate successes and you have to like um, you have to like actually enjoy the process, right? So I think if but, you but feel, I feel like that that's sometimes
2: easier said than done, right? Because sometimes there's just so much going on, there's so much pressure. It's hard
0: to enjoy it every single day. Yeah. I think I think most things it's kind of 95% of it is just relentless, mind-numbing, um, hard work. And then that results in kind of five percent of the time it's like novelty or success or like I think in many respects it's kind of drug right in terms of like um, you get these highs that are very very high in terms of what you achieved or customer feedback or you, you raise a new round that's like excites all the investors or you you land someone who's amazing who can who works with you who you learn from so I, so I think like um, I think you have to intrinsically enjoy day-to-day benefits, whether that's customers, investors, or employees. I think um, if the pressure's too intense, it might mean that your financial structure is too, like, like if you're burning too much cash or you have to run out of cash. Then, then maybe the burn's too high. If you promise too much and you're not delivering the product, then probably you have promised too much. So, I, I, I think. Um, you have, to, you have to have realistic promises for all counterparties such that you're not constantly about to break. But it's a happy medium, right? Yeah,
2: I think what I found was, um, you talked about the highs and the lows, and there are so many when you're starting a your company, so many highs and so many lows. And at the beginning, when you, you, know, when you have a high, when you, when you sign your first client, for example, the high is massive, you're ecstatic. It's great, right? you're on top of the world, you're king of the mountain, whatever it is, but then the lows, like you know that first maybe negative press coverage, or you know one of your early employees leaving because they don 't see the value in the company and they don't think it's going to be a success, or whatever the low is, those lows affect you more than they probably should as well, and I found as I went through that journey of building a company, I kind of numb myself to the highs and the lows so the highs were never that high and the lows were never that low. You kind of just stay at a, a happy medium as you made it. But then, that, you know, you look back and you're like, oh, those were such good times. I never celebrated them. But it basically allowed me, by numbing myself, it allowed me to not also then suffer from the stress and the lows as
0: much. Did you yeah. ever find that as well when you ran Comply and your other companies? Um, not really. I think, like, I think you need to be mentally resilient and emotionally quite tough, right? In terms of you can't let shit get to you, otherwise you get destabilized, right? So I don't think it's possible to let yourself go crazy, right? I think you have to, like, you have to manage yourself. You need to keep people confident in what they're doing. Um, otherwise, it's destabilizing, right? And your kind of attitude permeates throughout the entire organization. I mean, you read stories of companies their own name where the CEO um, <clears throat> walks in and... Like, you know, say the IPO has been pulled, then it says you're all at fault, all you failed. And it's like, well, actually, it was you, the CEO, who put in the space to plan. And you, you, you like, so ultimately, it stops with you, right? So, um, and your your um, mental frailties permeate throughout the organization for good or bad, right? So, as a leader, you're expected to behave, well, or you, you have to behave in a certain way, right? You, you have. You can't, you can't, you, you like the, 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 all the values that are written down are nothing compared to the values as lived, right? In terms of the cliches like culture, eat strategy for breakfast, right? In terms of like, so you, you have to live your values every single day. You have to be an exemplar. You have to, um, you have to be as perfect as you possibly can, right? Because people will copy you, right? Um, so yeah, I think um and, and and i think forcing yourself to be the best person the best version of yourself is 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 basically a good thing right and um i think that's part of the challenge of being a ceo and um that's part of the fun of it right so i i i i think personally i enjoyed that right so um and victories do sustain you and Get you energised and pumped and lead you fighting for the next right. So, um, I think setbacks you, you've got to like taking your stride, contextualise them in the bigger vision and fight on right. I think I think um, it, like more cliches right. You know everyone dies when everyone truly lives. So like, compared to having a job, it's a lot more exciting right because you know constantly there's existential like catastrophic. Collapse, or you're going to be the next Tesla, right? So, I think you definitely live a lot more than if you're kind of um, like a small cog in a massive corporation. I worked for Morgan. I think ultimately, I I much prefer like being completely on the hook for everything, having complete freedom to like you know run the company than I did being spoon fed. Relatively small tasks, right?
2: Yeah, for me it was because I used to work at Big Four, um, and I was an accountant and or auditor. And for me, it was that point where you're a cog in the machine, right? And you're you're not indispensable. You're very easily replaceable. And for me, I wanted something that felt more than being so easily replaceable, which is why I kind of went to startups and uh, becoming a founder because. There's so much then which you can impact on such a wider scale. And and that's what I found so exciting of being a founder Um, and working now in in startups more generally and and working with startups and advising startups, that element where your voice can have an impact on where the company goes. Uh, And that's, I think, one of the most exciting
0: parts, really. Yeah, I think... You can always raise more money. You can always go and hire more people. You can always build more stuff, right? Like, like the possibilities are endless, right? Um, But I think, um, and there's always more stuff to to read or people you can meet. Like, like um, it's like a bottomless, like endless ocean of opportunities, right? And I guess you need to superimpose some sort of intellectual framework to bring structure to that. Otherwise, you you can burn yourself out. And you be quite honest with yourself about which activity is worthwhile, which is superfluous. Yeah, it's always that, right? And
2: But then there's an element of which activity is worthwhile, but when how do you make a decision when there are competing activities that are worthwhile, right? And were you the type of founder that was like, we have to go all in on one strategy, or were you like, there's an element of hedging, where let's try and go to do two or three to see
0: which one's the right one? I think... Um where like, most startups um, you have this kind of core vision and it's just relentlessly pounding and um, focusing resources on that doing one thing particularly well so my advantage it was the data right and it's constantly improving the data constantly expanding the breadth depth um, um, speed accuracy um, provenance metadata like this, this constantly bringing in, Better talent, um, talent density, right? Um, constantly upgrading the team, um, and I think beyond like, but then you also get sucked in stuff like press, right, or like, um, or conferences, right. Like, I think something that I regret are kind of flying from Tokyo, to San Francisco via London, to be forty-eight hours, and then you're on like stage ten, um, and there's like seven people in the audience, right. It was like, why did I just waste? like destroy myself for like 50 hours so that four people could like hear me on a panel with like, it's just like the most pointless thing ever. Right. So, um, yeah, I think, I think part of the art of being a great CEO is having a sense of where you can spend your time because there, there's no real really watching you. Right. Um, the board might have 10 other board seats, um, but then, like, they're never gonna, like, say you have to be in a certain time, right? It's gonna be entirely up to you. So, ultimately, what matters results, and um, they have to back you or sack you, right? So,
2: yeah, I mean, that element of travel, I mean, everyone sees that as so luxurious and so exciting the element of flying from Tokyo to San Fran but having done it 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 is exhausting right and it's less fun it can be lonely at times and actually the most fun bit of running a company in my opinion wasn't that travel it's the the days where you're in the office with the team bouncing ideas off the wall with each other like working on the strategy and the plan for the coming 12 to 24 months like that's the exciting part not the not the travel and bouncing around with jet lag all over the world
0: yeah I think I think things like um, particularly the uh, early companies trying to win over like uh, like um, like I think the kind of critical infection points in a company which will be in things like the social network right a kind of where you like you have a critical client you're trying to bring on board or you're trying to bring on board and um, Great team member or an investor, right? I think, like, it's that kind of constant virtuous cycle of more customers feeling more investors feeling more great employees, and yeah, I I, think that's the critical thing, right? So, um, and having the core vision being amplified by all those things, and um, yeah, I, I think having to win people over is the exciting part. It's the social dimension of running a company, I think, um, travel planes, like. None of that is particularly exciting,
2: I think. Yeah. Well, you've talked about investors and investment and board directors a few times, and I want to get onto that, but I also want to talk about the FinTech Foundation, um, which is obviously the new incubator program that is being run by Integrated Finance and a great selection of partners, Comply Advantage obviously being one. Um, And I wanted to ask you why you guys... Thought it would be a good idea
0: to join the foundation as one of the founding members. Was a huge fan of integrated finance. The founders, are fantastic, and yeah, I think it's a great initiative and should really help um, budding fintech entrepreneurs um, scale their ambitions.
2: That's great, and one of the elements for us is you know, in our in our eyes, the industry is going to go through a challenge in twelve months just with the macroeconomic environment being what it is, uh, and we want to give budding founders the opportunity and tools to build their products, get them live with traction, um, and then at the end of that, it's, it's raising investment, right? Because that's gonna probably be our North Star of success is whether our incubator cohort can raise investment. Can you yeah. talk about your experience raising investment um, and, and the
0: challenges you found, how easy it was, how hard it was? Um, so I guess personally I've raised, I've raised money for two companies um marketing invoice and glide vantage and then I've I've, I've done 150 um, angel investments so I've probably have more um, more experience by volume in the angel investments and it's like you know companies often want to raise subsequent rounds um, so that's one thing and then the glide vantage I guess the margin is fairly easy going because i would already made everyone money on market invoice, right, so they were like, hey, can we invest in your next thing too, right? So I think, um, yeah, I think as as a kind of, as a serial entrepreneur, it gets much easier because um, people have spare cash they want to throw at you, basically. Um, but, but
2: okay, if we look back at the very first time you raised funds for market invoice, like yeah. what was what was that process like for you? How How hard was it?
0: So that was 2009, basically, and peak of financial Um, crisis in essence, right, at that point. Yeah. But I I think, um, and also I think the valuation we raised at was way lower than you raise that now. I think valuations, it it was a different era, right? Like now everyone does angel investing and um, it's like a well-understood process and there's a well-developed community of people who do this, who've been doing it for a long time Um, and there are lots of American funds here Whereas even back in 2017, you didn't have like every fund with an office in London. You didn't have um, the same valuations. And even now, with rates at like going towards 5%, right? So um, I'd say it's definitely got way easier, way faster. um, And the deals that entrepreneurs get are way better um, versus like for, for, so for Market Invoice, um, I had a co-founder, so immediately I was down to half the company on day one, and then we raised, we raised something like, gave away a third of the company for something like 350 grand plus debt, right? So it was 700 grand um, for like a third of the company, right? So the valuation was like, you know, two three million, right, one million post money, right? So yeah, um, whereas now that, um, the minimum you'd probably raise at for a pre-seed round would be um, pound-wise, what, like, probably about 5 million, right? So, um, yeah. And, and that initial
2: 350, was that from friends and families? Was that angel round? Was that a VC?
0: That was all kind of close personal contacts, like, so kind of friends from university or school or work basically, right? So, uh, um... Yeah, so I think we had enough people who had like a spare hundred grand um that they could lose and or lock up for like ten years. Um it was fairly easy going basically. So yeah, I think um I think because we've worked in certain areas it was kind of easier. whereas I think now like like i think um with the integrated finance round um I met um Dan and team through a friend from school, right? So, um, and I invested and I brought on board like quite a few friends as well, right? So yeah, I think um, I think um, it was obviously a great company to invest in and it's been a great journey so far, right? So.
2: Yeah, and now you've touched upon it, we should definitely go onto that is, you mentioned you've done 150 angel rounds or you've participated as an angel 150 times in companies. What are the
0: companies that you tend to invest in? The vast majority of them were kind of clients of Comply Advantage, where the sales team would be like, hey, the CEO wants to speak to you, um, <clears throat> and they want you to invest in the company, and you're know, about to sign a deal with them, right? And I was like, sure. you know." So like it kind of, or be a partner, right, where um, I've gone in to try and... Um, pitch the CEO to, like, work with them and they're like, hey, can you... So, I mean, it's kind of... I think probably the, the, the biggest chunk of those have been where I've known the CEO and they can ask me to invest, right? So, um, and I haven't really, like, got a huge amount of leeway to say no, right? In terms of, like, um, yeah, it, it, it's difficult to say no. Um, or people send me um, something that I think is, like interesting or, or you know I, I'm going to friends with the guy that is sending me the the, the deal um uh, so yeah I, I think a lot of it is like relationships like stuff so um I guess integrated finance was unique in terms of like I, I didn't need to invest in it right so um let's see how that works out in terms of what the returns are <laughs> it's funny that you say uh you're, you're going to struggle you
2: struggle to say no to these angel rounds once this podcast goes live I imagine you're going to be fairly uh, busy. I've, done way, I've done way less this year, basically. <laughs> I've
0: done, I I i done the same this year as I did in twenty twenty, so I I I have kind of gone back to a normal baseline, basically. So also twenty twenty one was like lockdown, right? So, um, as in everyone was at home, everyone was very bored, right? There was nothing to do the entire weekend, right? Like that, there was all socializing was online, right? So. Um, yeah, I, I think it, like rather than playing tennis or um, seeing friends, you just do angel investing, right? So, and you could do it anywhere in the world. So, I did like deals in Colombia or Togo or Singapore. Yeah, it's so like, yeah, I think um, all the geographical boundaries collapse, right? So, um, whereas hopefully now we're going back to, I'm trying to do more stuff that's going to, f- I can physically interact with rather than stuff in like Colombia. I think I made a lot of good friends um, and learned a lot from the angel investing thing, right? And I've been exposed to many more businesses and a lot of it also is going kind to of train data, right? It's gonna kind of understand what makes a great company and um, like, like some companies like, go nowhere for the first two years and then they kind of explode, right? Um, so I think just um, having a kind of um, a set of companies that I can like draw generalizations from um, and that's why typically I haven't I've done like big investments in these companies right I've done like typically 10-15k um, so yeah but I, I think and you try and help them along the way and um, yeah like it isn't as good use of time as working on my advantage right because you know if I own like 30% of my advantage versus I have like you know 10 grand in these companies right it's like um, in theory I should only work on my advantage yeah. Did you ever find that
2: you were stretching yourself a bit too thin with all these angel investments, and is that part of the reason why you scaled back in twenty twenty one and twenty twenty two?
0: At the time, it was only stuff that was what like really had a combined angle, which meant that I understood it because it was like adjacent to my So it was like it was a partner or a supplier or um, a client of the company, right? So it was all it was all linked to the company. Um, and I would never, I'd very rarely do stuff that was going to completely crazy unless someone who I'd met through the company, was like, um, telling me stuff. Right. So, um, I think I had a lot more time in 2021 because I wasn't flying. I didn't like, I I had a baby seven months ago. Right. So, um, so I think, yeah, I, I think, um, we all had a lot more time, right. Um, in 2021 because we weren't doing other stuff. We weren't like traveling. We weren't. Like, you could work 100 hour weeks and be fine with it, right? Because you weren't used to doing it all from home, right? So it was very efficient. So, um, yeah, I think um, I don't think it was a bad use of time. I, I don't think it was a huge time sink. That's interesting. And you mentioned you had a baby, and obviously, congrats
2: on that. And was, was becoming a father part of the reason why you decided to step back as CEO and move to chairman? Um, Or or had you just reached a natural conclusion with comply advantage running it day to day anyway?
0: Yeah, I think, um, I think partly, yeah, I think um, the first three months are kind of super intense in terms of the baby's like constantly, um, like needs milk. And I think um, also I think it was partly the kind of maturation of the company in terms of we have a great COO who became CEO, we have a great exec team. Um, we have a great board. Um, I think fundamentally it's because I like, like I, I think early on the company really needed me, and I was adding huge amounts of value because it was not me basically, right? Whereas I think now, um, I don't think I'm going to teach our CTO, or our CPO, or, or, or I don't think I have like huge amounts to kind of teach them, right? The company functions very well without me being CEO. Um if I felt the company was, if I felt it was kind of critical that I was there um, as CEO, then I would have left Mm. um, as CEO, basically, right? So I think 500 people, where we are on revenue, clients, it's like, I think, um, also in terms of like having been there for nine years, right? Um, Yeah, I think think the company is at a great place and stage and um, I don't feel that me... That that me personally that i'm that that I'm adding the same value as I was on day one and but that's such a
2: it must be such a hard thing to come to terms with to an extent right you said that the company doesn't need you anymore, and from being like a ba- your baby at the very start nine years ago and and being leading the growth for the last nine years, is
0: that hard to kind of adjust to the fact that it doesn't need you anymore so um I've done it twice now, right? With, with before Combine Advantage, um with marketing voice and machinery, right? So um like um so I, I it's not like um it's the first time ever time where I've experienced this kind of transition. I I, I think like it is I think the ambition on day one is that you build a company that's sustainable on its own. I think there are lots of ideas that we can pursue and lots of routes for investment and I think the team understand those, right? Um I haven't, like, left the company, right? I'm, I'm still there. Um, yeah. And I'm still going to, like, executive meetings and other stuff. But, like, um, yeah, I, I think it's desirable, right? Um, is it hard? Like, absolutely not, right? I think it's refreshing in a way, right? So, and I think, um, also, I think, you know, you bring aboard people of the caliber we, we brought on board. I think they want to see routes for advancement themselves, right? The guy who's now CEO, was CEO beforehand, right? I think, had yeah. I said, um, like, had I not done um, we moved the chairman. Like, do I do I think that he would have been necessarily happy in like three years time, or would he have got an offer to be CEO elsewhere? Probably, right. Um, so, ultimately, what matters to me isn't my status or um, my title. What matters is that the company does well, right? There's too much invested in the company, too many people for it not to be like. So, I've always been optimizing for how this company succeeds since day one, right? It hasn't been about me or um, like my self-aggrandizement, right? It's like fundamentally how do I made a company succeed. Like All that's always been there from day one and the company's doing well, I'm happy basically. That's interesting. I mean, I, I don't
2: think many other founders have that view because the, the the companies they found become part of who they are, right? And so sometimes letting go of that company it's a challenge for others and, but I guess having been serial entrepreneur, like you said, this being your third third rodeo, it, it's, it's made it somewhat easier for you.
0: So someone's coming doing well, I, I'm very happy, right? So, um, yeah, I, I, I think you have to be um, very rational about how things done. I, I, I'm very happy with the team we have and the progress in the company, and, yeah, I think it's a very exciting time for the company. Nice.
2: And if we touch upon the, the FinTech Foundation again, um obviously we're looking at young early or young startups early stage founders um and i guess what would you be looking for as part of the cohort like what do you want to see from the founders is it idea is it team is it vision is it just being super disruptive what if you were going to be part of the judging panel looking at these applications what would you be wanting to see
0: um, this fund called Co Two published this like state of fintech report about ten days ago, and it shows you that fintech is the kind of high like in terms of the, the the global economy, fintech is like the highest gross margin pool out there, right? Bigger than any other sector or industry, right? So, therefore, we know there's tons of money to go after, right? Um, therefore, what matters really is like. So, um, not necessarily the market per se, but the kind of people who are pursuing it and their unique insights on it, right? So in terms of experience, in terms of execution capability, um, I think the, the cliche is that you know any company can pivot and therefore it's about having the, the insights and understanding that. I think as an investor, you don't often have the same depth of understanding of that specific sub-niche as an entrepreneur and you're partly relying on the entrepreneurial signal that they're giving you, right? So um, ability to attract talent and money stems from the founding team, because they have to go and convince people. Um, Yeah, so I I think um, primarily you're gonna be looking at the CVs of the founders. Um, I think that's true up until maybe series A, right? So um, at which point you have unit economics, you have metrics, you have growth rates, and therefore, you know the team is fungible, right? So, I think at the stage you're looking at for the foundation, um, in the absence of any metrics that are kind of Series A-style metrics, um, is the team, isn't it? Yeah, no, it's, it's the
2: team. It, it's the idea. It's 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 a, bit, it's a bit of everything, right? You wanna we wanna work and back um, work with and back people who we've who are looking at innovating and disrupting still, right?
0: Also, they're going to interplay between the team and the idea, right? So, the idea could be, like, like for us, really boring, right? It could be, like, you know, I want to revolutionise the way in which um, backend APIs, uh, like, you know, no idea what it means, um, but um, that could be, like, a critical component of X, and if someone's really obsessed by that, then they have the energy and dynamism to, like, restructure that, right? So, a lot of FinTech is like particularly B2B infrastructure, which is so hot right now. Um, it's it, it, it's not addressable by a consumer mentality, and therefore it's kind of like, um, and yeah, I, I think someone who understands that is critical.
2: So, you mentioned the word obsess, right? And do you think founders by nature need to be obsessive with their idea and super
0: passionate? Do you think that's just a common trait across founders? if you're going to commit something for 10 years time right it's like a long time right um, and if you're not interested in it if you wake up every morning thinking god I'm so bored by this right like I mean lending right fundamentally it's just like metrics it's default rates it's cat ratio it? like you know it, 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 it's distribution channels it's kind of it's just numbers right so um, like how much of it is brand and positioning but then that's reducible to numbers too so I, I think Part of what I liked about it was that it was so complicated and there's so much to learn, and it was like AI, and like, you know, so it was kind of, I felt something which was able to interest me for such a long time. So just I knew I'd be able to keep on going at it, right? So um, if you're investing, you can be intellectually promiscuous to the extent that you can like wake up, look at one thing one day, and then you can shift to a different geography, different time zone, um, different industry. And you know, so, you, you, you can keep yourself intellectually sustained and sated by constantly shifting so I think um, but running a company sure you can shift between marketing, sales, tech but like um, the core product and your homepage is something you're going to have to look at every single hour at for the next like 10 years so if you're not really into it then you're going to fail because someone else will be capable of doing that and you won't be and
2: that's the element, right? Like, you've got to throw yourself full into the product for 10 years, because that it can yeah. be how long it takes. Um, yeah. And so it's it's a full-on commitment found it's in marathon, the right. making. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess now you kind of stepped away from that commitment. What well, What does the future hold? No, I'm, I'm still executive chairman, so... You're still executive chairman,
0: I, but So I, I, I'm not non-exec, I'm, I'm still executive chairman, right? So... I haven't fully stepped away from.
2: You haven't, you haven't, but with a bit more time on your plate, um, than probably yeah. you have. Yeah, it, I'm no longer, yeah. I'm no longer the point person for every mm-hmm. single query. It's <laughs> yeah. Good. Do Do you have mm-hmm. other ideas or ventures that you want to look at, or you, you know, are you going to look at going and doing a bit more angel investing in the future? What What's the next few years? My main be? project is um, Princess Truffles,
0: who's um, or Vomity Milk Fountain, um, who's um, seven months old now. Um, uh, beyond that I'm doing less angel investing than last year starting a company is like a huge amount of work and like yeah I think um, I I, I think um, if I find something particularly compelling then I'm happy to angel invest right so um, yeah so you've got any like I want to set the bar slightly higher than last year right so um, yeah I want to be much more selective. So
2: you don't think you'll be a founder again in the next few years? um probably like ideally not ideally not no you're done yeah <laughs> got your exit got you got your angel investment you got your little your little baby so that's that's
0: the future for charlie yeah i, I think um you've got to be psychotic to start a company haven't you so he's doing fine.
2: i'll ask you again in a couple of years you know you're a serial entrepreneur and so you get the bug and maybe now you're not feeling it but maybe in a couple of years you'll have the itch again so let's check in at that point
0: yeah exactly yeah and um,
2: for my final question for you today then um if you were to become a founder again um which is a question i ask all my my guests if you were to become a founder again what would your company do do you have an idea yet that you wish that you
0: had done before um, I think the stuff that um, we worked on really well, well which was kind of AI based technologies. And I think so, I think and um, everything I've done so far has been like B2B tech, right? So in all likelihood it would be some sort of B2B technology company, right? Um, like I guess the big sectors now are things like energy, defense, um, yeah, I, I, I like, so that's what I've done historically. But that's what I've invested in, right? So amazing.
1: Wow, what a story. We really hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss the next amazing episode. I'm sure you've heard about Integrated Finance's exciting FinTech Foundation incubator, where new FinTech founders can come and get exclusive access to a core banking technology stack, business mentors, and it's backed by some of the leading FinTech partners and investors, such as Mastercard, Cloud, Comply Advantage, Infuse, and many more. If you have an idea to shake up how financial services are done today, find out more about how to join us at incubator.integrated.finance. Take care.